This is Footy Time with Daniel Andrews, and I'm joined on the other line by Johnny Raff. How's it going, Johnny? Not bad at all. Another big round. Some just crazy leaps. At least three contenders for Mark of the Year, I think. I really like Bolton's. <laughs> the front-on angle didn't do it justice, but once they started showing the side-on angles, he basically like did a scissor kick in the air, and he got the lift. It was beautiful. I loved Bolton's, and I don't think the commentary did it justice, to be honest. The... I think they, yeah, I just thought that BT would get a bit more excited. Maybe he was looking at the front on angle because, yeah, it didn't, it kind of just looked like he jumped over Blitzavs from the front, but you could see just how high he got from the sort of the side on and the fact that he gets the lift afterwards as well, so. He did make it look easy. He made it look easy. Reminded me a bit of uh, Jeff Farmer's mark all those years ago against Richmond. I think a couple of people have brought that up where yeah. he gets sort of the, the lift off um, Gary Lyon and whoever his opponent was at the time. So, sort of like the step ladder, yeah. 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 Great mark, for sure. So uh, what caught your eye then from round eight? What caught my eye? Well, it, it was really hard to split two, so I might, I might actually go over both of them, if that's all right. Very quickly, obviously. Um, but the first thing that caught my eye was the Richmond back line. I don't think we've seen a, I guess, an insecure... Um, in you know, not sure of themselves, Richmond backline since this whole rain started. I mean, they just they were dropping marks, they were missing tackles. Guys like Broad and uh, Bolter, just yeah, were usually safe hands and, and just missing it. That didn't. That, it was a very long time since I'd seen that kind of performance from a Richmond backline. I guess there's a few missing out there back there at the moment, but you still normally get a pretty good performance. Everyone just sort of playing their role, but. Yeah, what, what's sort of going on? Do you reckon it's just reached that critical mass or is it more than that of players out? Well, I think that Friday night was just... I know that Richmond's been a little bit down this year, but that was really uncharacteristic. I mean, look, they are missing Dylan Grimes, who's a massive cog in that in that setup. But, you know, there's Broad, Bolter, you know, Marlon Pickett, I guess, when he's down there, they're, they're all still premiership players. So you would expect just a, a little bit more in the game. And this was when the game was in the balance as well, so... Yeah, it was, it was, they looked a bit spooked. Yeah, they're under a lot of pressure, weren't they? So I guess maybe teams have started to work them out a little bit. So we'll talk about that a bit more later. But yeah, some uncharacteristic things coming through for Richmond. What was the other thing? The other thing, eyes? just quickly, I thought, it, because it definitely caught my eye, uh, Port donning the prison bar Guernsey straight after in the rooms when singing the song. Uh, wasn't quite sure what to make of it. Uh, might have been a little bit of an up yours, but uh, yeah, very eye-catching. Yeah, the debate continues, doesn't it? Like, yep. I think, you know, what they do in the rooms after the game's really their own business. And I know, like, you get the media shots of it and everything, so everyone knows about it, but I can't see how anyone besides Eddie McGuire would have too much of a problem with that, really. I agree. I mean, it's obviously obviously something that means a lot to them, so yeah, they want to... You know, they want to celebrate their heritage and their history. So, yeah, find a loophole and that's all right. (laughs) (laughs) Why not? Yeah. Yeah, for me, you kind of alluded to it off the top. What caught my eye was there's just so many different ways that teams can win at the moment. There's a lot of uh, difference going around. Not everyone's trying to do the same thing. There's high-scoring games. There's low-scoring games. There's games where the pressure's just through the roof. So it's just great to see that there's variety back in the game and, there are actually teams that have sort of unique strengths and weaknesses, and it's interesting to see what happens when they come up against each other. I guess the examples from the weekend 
things like you know a bit of a shootout between Western Bulldogs and Carlton, and you contrast that to the hugely pressure-heavy contest between Melbourne and Sydney, and each in their own way are extremely watchable and exciting. But yeah, it's just great to have a game that you can have so many different things happening between different games, I suppose. Yeah, this is like this is the perfect way to watch football for me. I think when you've got a round that sort of showcases all the different ways of playing it. As you said, there was a you know a real sort of um, a dour struggle on Saturday night, but yesterday was just you know, goals flowing and you know wide open up and down. It's good to see all sides of the game, and that's that's what I love about it. But um, yeah, I, different. Yeah, there's no proven style. You can if you can win one way, then stick with that and I guess the venue as well does have a bit of a bearing on this like Marvel Stadium does lend itself to quicker higher scoring games in general but yeah I guess it is interesting to see the way teams set up and there's a bit of discussion as well in the media about you know can a team really be that successful if they're leaking a lot of score and I guess the ethos for a long time has been that you know defense wins premierships so if you're giving up you know 80 or 90 plus points a week how legitimate are you as a team that's sort of what people have been saying about Carlton with they've been a bit better lately but they're still leaking massive scores well yeah certainly when it comes to Carlton it's a it's a concern but I think look there are games where you can just it can just be a shootout I guess and it can um uh just just really good forward play you know there might be a defender like back in the 90s you'd quite often see a defender like uh like Silvani play on Gary Ablett and do everything he could but get beaten in pretty much every contest and Ablett ended up kicking like six goals or something. So uh, it, it can be good forward play as well, but obviously you look at that total score at the end, if it's you know, conceding over 100 points, it's not ideal. It is interesting because like once a game starts out being a shootout, it, doesn't, it seems quite rare that it'll actually change and go back into like being a dour struggle. You can almost tell in the sort of first 15 minutes of how much of a shootout it's going to be usually. It does sort of seem like if the lid's off, the lid's off. Yeah. <laughs> Although you will get like some games that sort of break open in the second half, but yeah. Yeah. Lots of different things can happen, obviously. Yeah, definitely. All right. So as we alluded to, one of the notable games over the weekend was Melbourne versus Sydney at the MCG. And... Uh, we finally got a Melbourne to do, game to do for the game of the round. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's jump straight into it. So it wasn't a great start for Melbourne. In the first 30 seconds of the game, Sydney had the first centre clearance and a deep kick saw the Melbourne defenders scrounging. And it was actually James Jordan who handballed out. Looked like he might have been going for Gordon. Really, it went to absolutely no one. And uh, in half a second, McInerney had it, had it on his boot and they had their first goal. I think it, was, it took about 20 seconds. Yes, it was exactly 20 seconds. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yep. So this was kind of symbolic of what was happening early in this game. Uh, Sydney kind of jumped Melbourne. They had the first two goals. Their pressure was right up, and they're also getting pretty good speed on the game. So they were definitely looking like a top, top eight, if not top four, contender. It's going to be a pretty difficult challenge for Melbourne here. So Melbourne were able to get things going a bit back their way a little bit though. They started getting a bit more control of the ball and getting a couple of set shots. So with set shots, uh, 
from McDonald, Melksham and Brown, all from nice setup kicks. They were actually able to take the lead. And uh, some of this good work was kind of undone, though, by Salem up the other end, who, much like uh, Jordan, as I described earlier, he basically handballed it straight to a Sydney player. It was actually the big ruckman, Hickey, who got on the end of this one and snapped the goal. So two of Sydney's first three goals were basically just us handing it back to them. And, yeah, it wasn't great. It was a beautiful snap by Hickey. Um, and, yeah, he was well on top early. Um, yeah, Gorn was struggling with him a bit, yeah. So did you say something about that last week, the fact that Hickey usually plays pretty well against Gorn in his days like at other clubs and stuff? I think you mentioned that. Um, I, it is definitely something that I would mention. Uh, I know, I know <laughs> Lysette usually does well against Gorn. He sort of gets under his skin a bit. But, um, yeah, I think maybe in the St Kilda days, yeah, I think Hickey was definitely a bit of a bogey guy for, for Max here. Do you reckon it's these guys who are a little bit stronger and can sort of do a bit more of the body work would cause Gorn a few more problems? Yeah, I do, actually. I think Max has usually got the strength advantage, I feel, over a lot of his opponents. But, yeah, if someone can match him and in the body-on-body -body stuff, um, it, I think it just stifles him a little bit in terms of what... Because he, he really likes to vary his head-outs, and I think mm. if he gets thrown off a bit, it's, it's not the end of his game, obviously, but uh, he has to adjust to it. Yeah, he was still doing pretty well, but yeah, mm. Melbourne definitely didn't have the clear ruck dominance like they normally do, or at least the majority of the time, yeah. All right, so back into the rundown. So just to illustrate this point a little bit further, Melbourne were getting absolutely smashed out of the centre bounces in particular. So Sydney were getting a lot of clean takeaways. Uh, most of them weren't costing Melbourne on the scoreboard, at least the defence was holding up pretty well. But this trend continued throughout the whole game. So from the 21 uh, centre bounces, Sydney won 17 of them. So <laughs> that's not a good ratio for Melbourne, yeah. That was incredible. Um, if you told me at the start of the game that that was going to happen, uh, yeah, I would have said you're absolutely crazy. Um, we just could not win a centre clearance at all. Um, Sydney were, were very good in the middle, don't get me wrong, but I, I didn't think we approached a lot of those centre bounces in the smartest way. It looked a little bit like last year where we were sort of, um, just the way the mids were sort of set up, it was, it didn't look like um, it gave us the best chance to win the ball and maybe get a quick handball out. And if so what we do you did get not to... enough coverage on the outside or? Um, yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Because it seemed like we would be first the ball and then we'd sort of try and get it out, but then Sydney would sort of be ready for it and, they did end up getting the takeaway. Uh, yeah, that, I reckon that happened at least three or four times. Yeah, I might have to play around with that setup a little bit. Yeah. It, hasn't, it definitely hasn't been an area of strength in other rounds either. I guess we, right. were always gonna, we were always going to come up with, against the challenge. Yeah, like there's that. always going to be yeah. little pieces you've got to work on. All right, so for Melbourne's first goal of the second quarter, it was actually McDonald receiving and then getting it straight on to Ben Brown. So key forward to key forward. The synergy is starting to look a lot better, only two weeks in. Yes, yes. Um, it was definitely better for having that hit out in uh, Hobart. And this is the perfect game, I think, to have a guy like Ben Brown. You know, the slight dew um, on the ground, a little bit of drizzle, and a lot more sort of long and direct. Um, I didn't think that the... The, the, the game wasn't really suited to what we'd been 
how we've been scoring lately. So Benny was there to sort of get us out of jail a bit, and so was this Tom McDonald. Um, yeah, I think you need to have those guys. Yeah, I think it shows, especially in these really high-pressure games where there are just a few sort of long kicks forward, and, uh, you know, it is really hard to score in these sort of games. So you do need the big forward who can actually separate it. And it seems like both Brown and McDonald, you know, sort of stood up when we needed them, particularly Tom McDonald, but Ben Brown was there as well. So definitely good to have at least two good tall forward options in these high-pressure games, I'd say. And you can't always play dry weather footy, you know, with the quick handballs and running and that. Sometimes you just got to bang it in there. Skull kicking looked good too. Like, the way he sets up, he never really looks like he's going to miss unless he's too far out. So I think that's another good thing. Yep. No, he's, it's all coming together, I think, for him. So we were a little harsh on him last week. I guess the jury was still out. And it kind of still is a little bit, but it's nice to see that he can sort of work within Melbourne's system to a degree. So somewhat alleviated the concerns there. I think there'll be a place for him. Uh, you know, there's always going to be times where we need to alter things. So it's good to have him rather than not. For sure. So this trend of the big forwards being important continued with T-Mac being strong at the top of the goal square before being able to hand off to Petrarca for a snap. So he, I think he, McDonald actually contested kind of against two guys here running back with the fly of the ball, just impacted it enough to get it to ground, and Petrarca was waiting for the top of the goal square. So that was another goal to Melbourne. Just on guys who you feel aren't going to miss, right now when Petrarca takes a snap, I never feel like he's going to miss. He seems to <laughs> dob him every time. So, yeah, another good sign for an emerging talent. Yes. What do you reckon? If he's within 30 metres, I reckon he'd be better off just lining up for a snapshot. Because of that argument. high ball drop. It's a good argument, actually. I, I wouldn't usually be an advocate for that, but <laughs> it's a, probably a fair argument. He's 50-50 at best from like a drop punt set shot, even within 30 metres. But I reckon if he goes to the snap, you'd increase that at least to two-thirds, if not higher. He does drop it high, you're right. Um, so, yeah, look, it, maybe not when he's dead in front, but look, <laughs> it, it could be something to try. <laughs> there was a bit of a trend. I think it was sort of early last year where everyone seemed to be starting to take their set shots as a snap, even... If they're only like 20 out, often they were actually lining up for the snap. And they still do it a bit, but it really took off the start of last year. Yeah, I'm not a massive fan of it. Um, look, I think on a 45-degree angle, it's probably okay. But I think any um, you know, any closer in front than that, it's. I, I just think... I'm a bit old-fashioned. I think you should be able to <laughs> kick the routine drop punt. Yeah. Look. I guess it, to me it depends on your ball drop, kind of what we were talking about there, because when you try and do a snap, you basically have no chance of kicking it if you don't guide it down a little bit more. So you're kind of forced to do that. So mm. it takes out a little bit of the margin for error. That's right, yeah. yeah. Anyway, so the second quarter, it was just getting really intense. There weren't a lot of goals. It was quite a dour game in a lot of ways. There's heaps of pressure. But it meant that every single goal and every single play was kind of amplified. There was a lot of uh, tension in the air with this one. So it all added up to an 11-point lead for Melbourne at halftime. But uh, Sydney was definitely up for the fight. With the halftime uh, margin, actually, um, 
Were you at the game then? I actually missed this one, unfortunately. But uh, you're yeah. watching keenly yes. at home. No, I ended up going, but um, the two people I was going to go with weren't able to make it, so I ended up having two seats free on either side. But I, I was talking with a couple of the people around, and uh, everyone seemed to be split at halftime. There were some people thinking we should have been further in front, and there were some people, and myself included actually, who thought we could have easily been behind. So it was a bit of a 50-50 in terms of uh, opinions on the halftime score. Yeah, I think Sydney definitely had, you know, enough of the play to be putting on a bit more score, but just how well Melbourne sets up behind the ball, it makes it so difficult to score unless you're getting, you know, like pinpoint passes going inside 50 or just like completely open looks. They're just so good at defending at the moment. Very much so. I can't remember too many marks inside 50 for Sydney. Absolutely. So let's jump into the third quarter. So after a petty dropped mark, it was actually Goulden who found it on the ground and got it out to Haywood. And on the snap, he made no mistake. So this was a pretty familiar pattern of play throughout the day. For some reason, I guess it was a little bit greasy, but the Melbourne defenders did seem to be putting a lot of the potential intercept marks to ground when they were getting a chance. And Sometimes it was giving Sydney a chance to score, as we just described there, and they did get quite a number of their snaps in a similar manner to this, not always by a direct drop. But yeah, it's something that really stood out to me, just how many marks the intercept defenders were dropping. Yeah, look, the weather didn't help that. Um, But yeah, there were were just many, many moments where there were some pretty routine marks, I thought, that were dropped. I don't think Jake Lever took a mark for the whole game. Um, he didn't play a bad game, mind you, but he, you know, he, sort of his trademark is to sort of, you know, fly in and as the third man and and take the relieving mark. Yeah, very interesting to see that yeah, he wasn't able to get one, but yeah, that was definitely something that I thought kept them in the game because as soon as it hit the deck, the Swans were onto it. Quite often, Melbourne did have enough numbers to sort of cover up the mistake, but. Yeah, I do remember at least sort of three or four goals Sydney getting once it hit the ground, fed it, fed it out to someone, and you get the snap. So uh, I guess they got to score somehow with Melbourne being so well set. Yeah, true. <laughs> kind of, that was kind of the two ways they were scoring, either just on the snap after the ball was coming to ground or absolute pinpoint passes getting it in yep. from like that sort of 70, 60, 70 metre range and just a really pinpoint pass just... That it's really hard to defend, I suppose. Yes. After this, though, Melbourne seemed to have all the momentum. So they were really putting Sydney to sword in this period. So firstly, it was Salem who found Brown's outstretched arms at the top of the square, who duly converted. Then T-Mac stepped through a pack of players who seemed to just dissolve around him, and he managed to finish with a snap on the left. Don't know whether you remember that one, Johnny, but that was pretty amazing. <laughs> Yes, yes, he sort of, yeah, he burst out of the pack and he looked he looked really quick doing it, just the breakaway speed and he was able to get that clear look at goal and, and throw it on the boot in a game where it wasn't easy to get the clear looks at goal. So uh, it was a beauty, that one, yeah. And there was another one that T-Mac nailed with a snap around the corner from the boundary as well. And at this point, Melbourne had a 22-point lead. So that was a beauty. This just reminds me, I think it was actually in the second quarter, Melbourne had sort of two or three shots. They missed all of them. They weren't the easiest shots, but they were relatively gettable. So 
they missed a bit of a chance to sort of put a bit of space between them and the Swans then, but this was their biggest lead of the game. Yep. 22 points. But almost as soon as Melbourne had got the momentum, it swung back Sydney's way. So this time it was Lloyd who was receiving one of these short kicks we were describing just basically on the 50, and he was actually called to play on because the kick was so short, but in his haste he was still able to get it through the goals to uh, get the things going moving Sydney Sydney's way again. And short time later, it was Warner bursting off half-back who got the ball in quickly, and the ball actually fell pretty well for Papley, who took about a second before snapping it, and as three Melbourne defenders sort of tracked back, they were all there, but all they could do was watch it bounce through. So they got it on quickly enough to actually prevent any of those defenders being able to have much of an impact. Yeah, it was a beauty, that goal, actually. Um, he's just very... He's, he's a smart player, Papley. I mean, he knows... He's one of those players you, who would know exactly how the ball bounces. He probably studied every which way that a Sharon can bounce as a kid. <laughs> yeah, um, Very opportunist goal kicker, yeah. Yeah, I knew he was going to kick that as soon as he received it. Like, yeah, he does miss the odd snap, but, you know, Sydney had just got a bit of a run on and they, yeah, it was very quick ball movement. The ball just fell perfectly for him, gathered, snap, goal. And then, yeah, the lead was down to 10 points at three-quarter time, so pretty tight going into the last quarter. Yeah, very tense. And as a mirror of the first quarter, Sydney actually goaled from the very first centre clearance and at this point, they'd kick the last three, and Melbourne were now on the back foot with a lead of less than a goal. Very similar to the Hawthorne game, uh, where they kicked a goal in the first minute of that last quarter to pull it back within a kick. And um, yeah, it was a, a feeling from Melbourne fans that it was just going to fold over. Uh, and the same thing in this game. Yeah, I guess this was probably the most uh, I'd felt like Melbourne was going to lose for quite a while. I guess it was getting a little bit worrying against North Melbourne in that third quarter when they stretched the lead out a little bit. Mm. But this was another level, I think, where it did look like Sydney were actually going to sort of come over the top of Melbourne here. It felt next level in a way, and we had to rise to that challenge. I think it was even more impressive because Sydney actually had most of the ball in the last quarter as well. But they were able to stand up and really take their chances when they, when it came to them. And, like, I guess a game like this shows that Melbourne doesn't necessarily need heaps of entries anymore. Like, their forward line can actually be really efficient. So we talked about how well uh, Tom McDonald and Ben Brown were doing. But uh, even guys like uh, Melksham and a few others, they're actually just really dangerous. Even They don't actually need that many opportunities. And especially when you're locking the ball in as much as we are at the moment, uh, it's... Yeah, it just changes everything. So it was a little bit of a different challenge for Melbourne, as we described there. And uh, they really didn't have many chances in the last quarter. So the game was being played more or less in Sydney's half. But at this point, they did actually manage to get it into their forward line. And their trademark forward pressure saw it bobbling around a little bit. And somehow it seemed to squirt out to Spargo. And in a flash, he got it onto the boot. little check side on the right foot from pretty straight in front managed to just evade the the right goal post and at this point Melbourne now had a nine point lead 
So the next goal for Sydney also came from a bit of a pinpoint pass to Mills about 40 metres out. And uh, I had no doubt he was going to kick this. And hmm. sure enough, it went through and the margin was less than a kick again. Yes, tense times. So in a low-scoring game, each goal in this last quarter was pretty much like gold. And uh, I can't quite remember how long was left, maybe sort of four or five minutes, maybe slightly longer. And uh, again, with good forward pressure, Melbourne forced a hat kick out of defence. And it was actually Harms who marked about 52 metres out. He shaped as though he was going to kick for the goal, but instead dropped it to about the top of the square. And it was actually Ben Brown and Tom McDonald who both went up for the mark. And their defenders were somewhere around, but with McDonald getting up highest and uh, clunking the mark and uh, just managing to hold on as he fell to ground. It was a pretty big mark, this one. This was the play of the game for me. I mean, if you look at the top two or three plays of the game, they were probably from T-Mac. Um, but this one was amazing. Um, just, a, a, you know, it's, it's hard to take a pack mark, and he is actually quite good at it. And, yeah, it was sort of bobbling, and he still managed to secure it right on the ground. Uh, it was just such a timely, a timely piece of play because uh, you were saying every goal felt like a premium. I, I felt like every mark felt like a premium, or even bits of territory in that last quarter. So, yeah, nothing was, came easy. Oh, that goal was worth at least three for me at the time. But <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, it was great to see, great to see him able to clunk that one. And it turned out to be the match winner with not a whole lot of time left. Melbourne managed to hold on. So, uh, I guess. To me, this game proved that both teams could play at a really high level when, uh, you know, the pressure's really on. And I guess it's kind of that final style of football where nothing was coming easy. You just had to take territory when you could and uh, rely on, you know, bits of brilliance to sort of break it open when you could. But, yeah, it was a bit of a slog. Still extremely watchable. So that was one of the reasons I wanted to do this game because... We've kind of been harping on about how important scoring is the whole time, but uh, you can have a really exciting game that's basically 60 points apiece. Yeah, look, it was finals atmosphere, definitely. I think, yeah, both of these teams are going to feature in finals this year. Um, And that's absolutely right. Um, uh, Good football doesn't have to be high-scoring football. I mean, there's a lot of ordinary games where... Uh, it's scrappy and skills are bad and all that. This was just, I think, great in and under work from all the midfielders and things like that. Uh, just a real scrap. Got goals being an absolute premium. I guess that's one thing we haven't really talked a lot about. It was, particularly like through the midfield, it was really difficult to actually get clear possession. And Melbourne did flick it around when they could to try and get someone out with the handball and uh, get it moving forward. But I guess that was one of the other things that stood out to me. Uh, Melbourne did seem to be able to uh, create that sort of dangerous movement probably more often than Sydney. Often it looked like Sydney was in more space, but they were kind of going a little bit more the scenic route, whereas Melbourne, when they got their chance, often it was just sort of straight lines. So when they did uh, sort of get that spare player, they were usually making the most of those chances. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we probably won the territory battle. I'd say we had it in our forward 50 probably more than Sydney did for the game. Um, Especially in the second and third quarters. De- yeah, say, definitely. So. Definitely. But um, look, the big thing I took out of this game was I, d- I actually didn't think we played a great game. 
to be honest. So, look, there were some guys who were brilliant, but I thought quite a few of our guys were, were a bit down. Um, it, look, Petrarca was serviceable. I thought, um, uh, I actually thought Max was probably a little bit down. I know we've got high standards, but he was probably a little bit down. Um, Brayshaw, I thought, was down. Uh, but the best part of this was we can be down and we can be smashed in the clearances. I think it was 17 to 4 centre clearances at the end. But we hung in there. And in the last five minutes, we met every single challenge that was put to us, whether it was a 50-50 out on the wing or in the back line, you know, Stephen May needing to come in and make a punch. He got his fist on pretty much everything that came in. It was it was really amazing. It, was, it, it wasn't goal written, like, showering goals or anything but it was just great to see that this from from a melbourne team i mean i really they've been really strong in last quarters this year so i guess that does show that you know they are fit and they're running out games but as you're saying like they're just up for the fight they're up for the fight all the way through yeah which is really impressive It's, it's huge and they have been you know stages through all of their games where things haven't been going their way so even though they're eight and zero it hasn't been without its challenges and adversity. So I think they're much better at dealing with that now than they have been in the past. And I think some credit obviously has to go to the coach. He's been, he hasn't missed a beat this year with his match day moves. And if something's not working, he's, he's not afraid to, to tinker more this year, where I think in the past he might have been a bit, a bit stubborn. And um, I mean, you've got to stick with your game plan, obviously, but it's just been good to see uh, guys like Luke Jackson getting a run in the ruck if Max is having a bit of a hard time. And yeah, I, I think it's it's just good to see. And that's probably due to the guys that have come in this year around him. They've probably um, given him a fresh look at things. I think it's a lot simpler for the players now as well. Maybe not simpler, maybe it's not the right word, but everyone just understands their well, role. They know their the backline's yeah. set. They understand what they're trying to do in the forward line in terms of spotting, whether it be like spotting up kicks, going wide to make sure it's not coming out too quickly, uh, mm. you know, putting the forward pressure on. Yeah, It all the, just seems to be clicking. The, the structure, the defensive structure, whether it's in the back line or, or even just uh, like if, if the opposition's kicking in from a behind, um, everyone, I feel, is in their right place. They know exactly where to be. It's mm. so one thing, I don't know how much other teams do it, but Melbourne, if they've got a kick about sort of, you know, say 80 out, somewhere around there, they'll almost never go to the middle of the 50 unless someone is completely open. So the forwards are leading to the pockets and uh, more often than not, it just goes over the boundary. But you're, basic, you're almost defending while you're attacking. Yeah, <laughs> you're, def- yeah. you're, you're preventing the opposition getting a quick transition against you. So you're almost setting up to actually uh, you know, get another look at it that way. And you know the chances of you actually scoring when it's a bit congested and you're doing a long kick into your forward line, they're extremely low anyway. Mm. So you may as well not actually put the ball where it's going to perhaps give the opposition a better chance of actually slingshotting back the other yeah. way. So I think they're doing that really well as well. And we've seen Melbourne teams in the past just um, you know kick it down to intercept defenders' throats all day and they've just chopped it off. You know, So I think it's a good... It's a good um, tactic to do to do this because if worst case scenario if you force a stoppage i mean we'll take that all day (laughs) yeah yeah Yeah. absolutely all right so uh that brings us to the end of that recap thoroughly enjoyable hopefully you guys took something out of it even if you're not a melbourne supporter but uh i think quite a few of our listeners must be melbourne supporters (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> the demographic anyway. But anyway, we'll see how we go. Off the top um, of your head, Dan. Sorry, off the yep. top of your head, what would your three to one votes be for this game? Oh, T Mac was three by a mile. I thought I didn't think too much about the two and the one. Did you have? Oh, I think, think about this. I think T Mac and Oliver were far and away the best players on the ground. Straight after the game, I, I would have said Oliver, um, but this is one of Tom McDonald's best games for the club, I think, and all his goals were very good goals. So yeah, he um, was extremely influential, getting a bit up the ground. Yeah, just. Um, yeah, he was the perfect forward on a night like this, really. And four goals in a game where we've kicked 10. Uh, yeah, I can't go past T-Mac. I would go Oliver second. And I, I thought Rampy won for the Swans. Uh, he came back from his broken finger. and Yeah, he's, he's just a warrior. Yeah, he was making things very difficult for Melbourne. Even where they had some pretty clean looks, he was always in the right spot. So definitely, uh, I think if he hadn't come back, it may have been slightly easier for Melbourne yeah. in this game. And, you know, Sydney has pushed Melbourne as much as anyone, really. And uh, although they didn't score a lot themselves, they really did keep Melbourne to quite a low score. Although it was a bit of a drizzly game, like we are talking about. Yep. Did it rain that much? Like, on the coverage, it looked like it was raining a bit, but not a it, huge amount. It was just constant drizzle, really. Yeah. Very light drizzle. It was just dewy, I think, yeah. Alrighty. All right, let's move into some of our random topics as we do. <laughs> so the first one I wanted to have a bit of a chat about was when is the most of the score in a game actually being kicked? So when is when are the most goals being kicked in a particular game? Obviously, it can vary a little bit from game to game, but I think there has been a little bit of a trend I've noticed in some games at least where the last quarter is often the most heavily scoring uh, for one or both teams. But it almost seems like, even if it's like a really close contest for, say, like two and a half, three quarters, once one team sort of breaks the other team, the floodgates almost open. And I guess the classic example of this from the weekend was the Bulldogs versus Carlton. So I suppose in the last sort of four or five minutes of the third quarter, Carlton were still up by about 20, minutes, 20 points at this stage. But something changed and Bulldogs got a real run on and they just kicked a huge number of goals to finish that game. I was listening to that game on the radio, actually, um, while I was doing a few other things. Uh, Mother's Day things, I guess. Um, but um, it did feel like that. I mean, Carlton, I think, yeah, we were up by about 20 points or might have been two goals and the Dogs kicked a couple in a row. I just, I just thought it was a matter of time before they draw level and probably get in front it was it was happening very quickly they were just scoring they weren't just scoring but they were scoring very quickly so I guess this goes back to something we were talking about quite a while ago the fact that you do have a few more attacking options with these new rules we've seen that coaches have been able to slow it down a little bit but once one team sort of gets properly on top of the other especially towards the end of a game where maybe the players aren't as fresh you really can pile on a fair bit of score. Definitely. More so than before, I'd say. Yeah. So I guess that's one reason we're probably seeing more sort of 40-plus margins because you can have a game that's been close almost the whole way through and it only takes sort of 15 or 20 minutes to actually just, you know, put a huge gap between yeah. the teams. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Must be doing some crazy things with the betting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the line bets and things like that, yeah. 
The other thing I saw over the weekend was uh, champion data stat about how important intercepting through the midfield is. So uh, I guess they were calling this midfield interceptions. So instead of turning it over in your back half, if you can turn it over in the midfield, it was incredibly important. So the stat they had was that 41 out of 43 teams who have won this stat, midfield interceptions, have won the game. So I guess maybe similar to what we were saying there, because there's a bit more space now, if you can actually manage to turn it over in the midfield, it gives you a really good chance to score. Well, yeah, I mean, it's that would be the best place to turn over, you know, catch the back lines off guard, and that's, yeah, that's, you get it in quick, that's always going to be, you know, the best option, the defender's probably not going to stop that. Makes me wonder whether that was similar in previous years. I'm guessing the winners of that stat would have usually won as well, but maybe it wasn't quite as clear-cut as that, so just because there is a, a little bit more space going around at the moment through the midfield. Maybe it makes those midfield interceptions even more important. It is an interesting stat. Um, is it just, in, like, is it intercept marks or is it just intercept possessions? I think it's just intercept possessions, yeah. Right. Yeah, and, and uh, turnovers or just kicks well, going to the opposition? Well, I guess it has something? to be a turnover, doesn't it? Because like, would, it be, uh, would it count things like if there's a 50-50 ball and that one team had it, but then it then gets turned over? Would it be things I think like, so. I yeah, think that would right, count. Yeah. So basically one team has it and then the other team has it. So that yeah, would be an that's just as simple as that, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's, yeah, I totally agree. I think that is a really a crucial step. Absolutely. So we've seen a few games of Richmond lately and they're four and four now. So uh, the question I'm going to ask here is, have Geelong and Melbourne kind of provided the blueprint to how to beat Richmond? So I say that because it sort of seems like if you can find a way to actually deal with the pressure that Richmond's putting on, not panic, not dump kick, and actually try and you know execute some pressure back the other way as well, and then you can sort of execute your game from there, it does seem like that might be Richmond's kryptonite, at least at the moment. Yeah, I think it's it's definitely leveled out a bit. It, it, then you know they are human. I think that's definitely the case. Um, it's it's really I was, it's really hard to. It, it's I'm trying to think of the word. It's very subjective. I think to to say whether a team has has come up with the full on blueprint of how to beat a certain team because honestly. On any other game, I don't think Richmond make all those errors in their in their backline, um, and it, it could have been a little bit different. But you know, obviously, I think the way that Geelong went about it on Friday night, they were always in with a chance. They, you know, they matched the pressure. They were moving the ball quick. I I really like seeing Geelong when they move the ball quick. I'm actually, quite good at it. Um, but yeah, look, it's a really it's a really interesting question. I don't fully know the answer to it, but um, you're obviously in with a chance if you. If you do those things, and, and as Sydney did a few weeks ago when they, you know, sort of kept drawing them out of position with those short kicking and things like that, frustrating them. Uh, yeah, it's... Yeah, I mean... It's I guess, hard, yeah, it's we've seen a few... It. We've seen a few different ways of beating Richmond, as you're talking about with Sydney. Mm. And, yeah, 
Jordan hasn't Melbourne been one something week. similar. But uh, I guess the other question is they're four and four now. So how much does beating Richmond really mean? Like everyone builds it up as this like huge thing to beat Richmond, but you know if they've won as many games as they've lost, is it really that big of an achievement to beat Richmond at the moment? Well, that's actually a really good question. Um, I mean, look, if you beat the reigning premiers, it's always something, I guess. But, you know, yeah, you'll get to a point eventually where it is just like, okay, that's all right. You know, you were probably an even money bet to win that game anyway. But it also depends what team you are. If um, if Carlton went and beat Richmond tomorrow, that would be a massive achievement. Um, but if Yeah, was... I'm not saying it's not a good achievement, but maybe, no. maybe it's not as big an achievement as no. we maybe thought it was at the start of the year. No, and I, and I agree with that because I think at the start of the year there was that sort of air of invincibility about them and how are you going to score on them. But uh, look, I still think it's a, it's still good. I still think they're a good side. And I just know the minute that I rule them out or just you know write them off, they're going to, they're just going to like go on a five-game winning streak and storm into the finals and... Maybe in the top four. Yeah, I don't think anyone's saying at this stage they're going to miss the finals, but it is. But most aren't. Most aren't. You're right. Yeah. Yeah, it is interesting that you know there there's a few ways to beat them. Maybe people are starting to work them out a little bit, and uh, maybe maybe it is some of these adjustments to the rules have made it a little bit harder for them, like we referenced earlier on. But it seems to be a combination of things. Maybe other teams have got a bit better as well, so. It's just, I guess it's just not going to be as easy for Richmond as it has been in previous years. I think it's fair to say that. The one thing that is consistent across all the performances that have beaten Richmond is they've matched them with the pressure. Yeah, absolutely. So if you can do that, if you can match their pressure, you're in with a great shot of at least being very competitive throughout. Yep, yep, definitely. All right, so let's just talk very briefly about, as something you were alluding to there, Johnny, what Geelong actually did differently versus Richmond. So we know they've lost some huge games against Richmond in final series, most notably last year's grand final, 2020 grand final up at the Gabba. They also had a prelim final uh, where they're up at t- by 20 points at half time uh, in 2019 and ended up losing that game as well. So a couple of things that really stood out to me. You mentioned the quick ball movement. They're not always going quick, but they're definitely no. more uh, willing to take it on yeah, in this definitely. game. And I think that's been building for a few weeks now. But they did seem incredibly uh, willing to actually look for that 15 to 20 metre inside kick, take the 45 kick that is open now with the man on the mark not being able to move and uh, try and move it through the middle when you can. So I think it is a bit of a philosophical shift. We talked about this earlier saying, you know, like, would Geelong change their game style? And I think we both said that they wouldn't, but it's starting to look like they have changed a bit. Yeah, and I think having someone like Jeremy Cameron there now, he really thrives on this, on the, you know, the ball sort of, like, pinging around in the 50 and, like, fast sort of chaos-type movement. Um, and so they probably had to adjust a little bit to that. And and he's thrived on it, really. But... um. Like, yeah, it's it's definitely helped, I think, uh, just just moving it a bit faster when they can. Because we saw, I think it was Easter Monday against Hawthorne, they just weren't taking that option at all. If there was space in front of them, they'd take it back and, it was like, you know, protect 
protect the ball first kind of thing and uh, play the tempo game, I guess. But yeah. So I think... David King talked a little bit about this as well. The fact that they're a little bit more willing to actually uh, sort of take it on through the contest. Uh, Hardwick also talked about how, you know, they did really well to break some tackles and actually get the ball moving through. So that also sort of hints at a bit of a shift here. So instead mm. of just being having to, you know, try and control the ball perfectly the whole time with their sort of kick mark game, they're being a bit more willing to actually uh, take it on in the contest and uh, just get it moving quickly there, even if it's not absolutely perfect. Definitely. So it's, al- it's almost like Geelong's version of sort of the Richmond game. Well, definitely, definitely. And they... um. Yeah, they've really upped uh, their contested work, I guess. So they really smashed them in that area. Uh, clearances were, uh, centre clearances were probably a more level or slightly Richmond's way, but mostly Geelong had that. Um, yeah, they've just they've, it, it's more old school, I guess, than what they've been doing. So what do we think about Jeremy Cameron? He's been in for a few weeks now. I guess they're playing Hawkins deeper. Cameron sort of roaming up to the wings and also tracking back inside 50. He seems very dangerous once the ball hits the ground as well. So yeah. he's almost the perfect sort of forward for them to complement what they already had. Exactly right. Exactly right. Um, <clears throat> sorry. Yeah, you do. You, you have Hawkins deeper. You've got Rowan sort of like that sort of that triangle thing that's happening and it's very hard to, to play any sort of zone back lines with those guys sort of leading out the way they do. And it, it really shifts the back line a lot. But, it's a bit um, of a zone buster as well. Like yes. Cameron yeah. can kick it close to 60 metres as a field kick so exactly. he can get it over the back. Exactly. I mean, you can have all the zones you want, but if he's, a, yeah, if he's kicking it through the big sticks, you know, from just on the arc, yeah, or, or splitting, you know, a nice pass, yeah, it's very hard to stop. But, yeah, he's... It, it, the style is suiting him at the moment, but... There is a part of Jeremy Cameron, I kind of feel like he would do this in most sides. I think he would slot well into most sides and he kind of makes his own play. He doesn't sort of need it on a silver platter. So do you reckon he's like more of this sort of roaming forward rather than like, you know, a contested marking forward? Because he has done that a bit in the past, but it almost seems like he's actually more suited to this sort of running forward role, a bit more like Tom McDonald, where he's not going to be static that I much think of the so. time. I think he's a great mover and he has to be moving. Uh, he likes to work hard. He covers a fair bit of territory. Um, I think, yeah, I think Tom McDonald's actually a good, a good uh, comparison, really. I mean, he's always moving, mobile forward, I guess sort of a little bit like Nick Rewalt used to be. Um, yeah, absolutely. He's, he's definitely more of that than a, a stay-at-home forward. Well, I think Geelong would be uh, very happy with their investment at the moment, and they're about to give up a fair bit to get him. Was For it sure. two or three first-round picks? But, I uh, think it was three. Three. Three later first-round yeah, picks. Maybe but, two uh, in a future first, maybe? Uh, something like that. Yeah, they got something back, but it was a big investment. He wanted to go there. You got to find a way to get the deal done. And early signs yep. are very good. And, you know, when Hawkins does eventually retire, you know, Cameron will be the main man up there That's and hopefully it. they can get some support, but they look set for a fair while there, Geelong. Yep. Oh, for sure. All right. So we've got to our last segment, which in on this occasion 
is Johnny's rolling... Well, it's not rolling, because we're only <laughs> doing it today. It's Johnny's All-Australian team to round eight. So uh, I'll hand it over to you, Johnny. Yes, welcome to the official, unofficial, after round eight All-Australian team. Uh, a few little caveats that I want to get out of the way first, because uh, I know All-Australian teams can make a lot of people's blood boil. Um, the nuts and bolts of this team were pretty much selected before this round. We definitely looked at this round and saw you know, if, if any changes need to be made, but mainly based on what had happened up until that point. Um, if anyone out there wants to raise any counter-suggestions, uh, you know, just please do so in a respectful and mature manner. Um, and send us an email on footytimemail at gmail.com or comment on the Facebook page. Is that right, Dan? Is that good advice? Yes. Um, Tried to keep a position relative as much as possible, but there were just moments where players had to be in, so a little bit of flexibility was required. Um, but yeah, we'd, we'd love to hear your thoughts on this, and uh, yeah, if you have any suggestions, yeah, don't hesitate to reach out. But I think we'll start it this way. We'll go, we'll go line by line, and yeah, we'll just chat a little bit about some things that stand out with those lines. So starting from the full back line, we've got. Bailey Dale, Stephen May, Jacob Wiedering. Um, spotlight on Wiedering here. He's really impressed in a back line that's, to be fair, had really terrible defensive structures. <laughs> um, I actually think he's kept them in a lot of games this year. There, there's a couple of games this year where they lost by about four or five goals that could have easily been, I reckon, 10 goal beltings if it wasn't for someone like Wiedering. Um, 12 intercept possessions yesterday. I think he's having a really, really good year. Yeah, absolutely. I think Bailey Dale is an interesting one. Do you want to give us a bit of insight as to where that one came from? Yeah, well, that was actually an after this weekend pick. Um, yeah, I think he's just he's a really good sort of mid-sized defender. I think he's about 187 centimetres. Uses the ball really well. He, he finds targets as he gathers in the back line. Um, he's, he's one of those safe kicks, I think. He just does what he needs to do. Um and he's, yeah, in, once again, he's probably in not a strong back line, but he manages to, he manages to use it. I think that's what it, the main thing I saw when the heat was on yesterday. He, he's always calm under pressure and just composed, finds a target. Absolutely. So who was the, across the half back line then? So the half back line, let's get that up. We've got Daniel Rich, Aaliyah Aaliyah, and Jack Bowers. Um, yeah, I'll let you go first on this one, Dan. What do you, what do you think? Oh, yeah. I was just going to say, I don't think too many people would have too many disagreements with Aaliyah, Aaliyah and Daniel Rich. I guess not a lot of people have heaps of exposure to Jack Bowers. Yeah, and neither did I, actually. <laughs> but um, he's really slipped under the radar. He's ranked second for kicks in the AFL right now. And he does average about 23 disposals a week, I think it was. Once again, your typical sort of halfback flanker uses it well, gets up the ground. Uh, I think he's been a shining light for the Gold Coast this year. A sign of their improvement if they've yeah. got someone anywhere even close to the All Australian team. That's right. So, yeah. who was your biggest backline snub then? Who were you trying to fit in but just couldn't quite get there? Who was I trying to fit in? That's a very, very good question. Um, I would have liked to have put Lockie Ash in there. I think these last few weeks have been excellent for the Giants. 
maybe just started a little bit slower in um, the first few games, but yeah, he was pretty stiff not to make it. Did Lever come anywhere close? Lever did come close. He did. Um, maybe, or maybe I just got a little bit swayed on the weekend with him not taking a mark. But, uh, <laughs> but no, Lever has been very good. Part of a very, very uh, strong and you know cohesive backline. Uh, yeah, he's he's not far off it. All right, let's get yes. into the midfield and centre line. Yes, we, I guess start with the centre line. So the centre line we've got on the wing, Hugh McCluggage. In the centre, Jack McRae. On the other wing, Ed Langdon. Uh, McCluggage is averaging 26 disposals a week. I would say he's one of the best users of the footy in the league right now. He kicks both sides, finds good options under pressure. And he's got a massive tank as well. He runs all day. And yeah, I think he's easily in that in that centre line. Seems to have gone to another level without Neil in the side. So I think people are predicting that he would have got quite a few Brownlow votes in the last couple of weeks in particular. So yep, might be a that. sneaky chance for the Brownlow. I definitely agree with that. Yeah, he's very fun to watch. And yeah, like I said, he's an elite user of the footy. Uh, yeah, those guys are definitely worth their weight in gold. So these three guys you've named here, they're all absolute running machines. Great endurance, Langdon, yes. McRae, McCluggage. So... I guess that does give them part of their advantage and uh, seeing them rise to the top, yeah. Absolutely. I think you do need to be... You've, you've got to be a run-both-ways kind of player. Uh, you look at guys like Ed Langdon, he's just... The, the territory he covers is amazing. And, and it's, hard to, it's, it, it's hard to admit that he's probably slipped under the radar a bit for us because we watch him every week, but he, he's constantly finding the footy and he's actually... Tackling quite hard as well. He doesn't get credit for his, um, you know... He's got a lot tougher, tackling. yeah. When he first yeah. came over, he was a little... I think most Melbourne supporters would have, think, would have thought he was a little soft, like a bit of an outside player. Yeah, but he's definitely, ball. Yeah. he's definitely bought into what they're trying to do with the pressure, so it's great to see as well. Absolutely. All right, do we want to go to the ruck line or the half-forwards first? We'll go half-forward uh, and we'll do the followers after... No, the full forward line, but yeah, we'll go half forward. Uh, Christian Petrarca, Harry Mackay, Sam Walsh. Um, so Looking good for Carlton, eh? <laughs> very good, very good. But I would say deserved, um, deservedly so. Harry Mackay has kicked 30 goals and had 20 contested marks this season. I think that's second in the league. Just a great pair of hands. I mean, he's, yeah. He's clunking everything at the moment. Oh, absolutely. Beautiful. No, he's got those big buckets of hands, so... Uh, yeah, I think he's developing really well. Sam Walsh is the one that I uh, thought, you know, people might say, well, not really a half-forward flanker, but uh, I think his form lately definitely warrants a spot in this team. And he's, yeah, I think that's something that Blues fans can hang their head on at the moment. He's really going along beautifully at the moment. Good to see you've bought into the classic All-Australian thing of trying to fit as many midfielders in, midfielders in as possible. Well, yeah, look, some, sometimes you have to. Sometimes you have to. I think you've done pretty well to stay within the positions. I guess he's, prob- he's probably the, the one who stands out as being yeah. slightly out of position, but you got to do what you got to do. Well, at least we're, we're honest about it. <laughs> so we'll move to the full forward line. We've got Toby Green, Taylor Walker, Ben King. Uh, Tex probably had a, a rough night in the showdown, but yeah, look, there's... No doubting what he's done so far this season. Uh, you know, he looks like the Tex of old. He's 
really just playing with rage at the moment. <laughs> I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's great to see. So what about Ben King? What, what did he do that uh, meant he had to be in your team? Yeah, look, to be honest, it was probably down to Ben King and Re- Jack Real uh, for that spot. And yeah, look, there might be a bit of, uh, might be a few conversations about that. But uh, you know, look, Ben King's kicked 23 goals for the season. He's, you know, he's up there in the contested marks. Can't remember quite off the top of my head where he is, but he's, yeah, he's progressing well. He's a very hard matchup. And yeah, he's only going to get better. Only going to get better. So yeah. Very good speed on the lead to get away from this Very good. opponent. Quick off the mark. Uh, yeah, it would be a nightmare to play against. Natural kick for goal. So. Very good kick for goal. <laughs> Very good kick for goal. It was interesting seeing the two twins go at it on the weekend. Who do you think got the better of it? Oh, look, I'd, I'd say Ben did, but Max was quite good. I mean, Ben kicked three goals. Uh, yeah, well, hang on. I might have gotten them mixed up, actually. <laughs> um, it's easy to do. <laughs> it is easy to do. I might just quickly do, quickly check that just to make sure I got that right. Uh, goals, yeah. So, so yeah, but- just as a bit of background as well, like uh, Ben King has, was who Melbourne essentially traded away when uh, they got Stephen May. So that was the pick Gold That's Coast right. used, right? Yeah. That's right. And it was right. It was Ben with the three goals and uh, Max kicked one. Um yeah, so I thought, yeah, go with Ben. I know there's two Gold Coast players in this team, but uh, that we Our like one to... Gold Coast supporter will be happy with him. Exactly, exactly. But we like to be fair. <laughs> we like when you know, we like to promote the national game. All right, who are the to, rucks? So to the followers, well, Max Gorn is, I think, easily the best ruckman in the comp at the moment. We've got Clayton Oliver, Ruck Rover, and Ollie Wines Rover. Very solid. Got some contested bulls here with Definitely. Oliver and Wines. Definitely. And, yeah, it sort of speaks for itself. <laughs> In the, yeah. does raise it. the question, though. If Melbourne's got two of the starting rucks, why can't they get a centre clearance? <laughs> well, it does. It does. It absolutely does. Um, I wonder why Max doesn't just smash it forward a bit more. Well, I guess earlier in the year he was. He, every now and then he would do that, wouldn't he? And it was kind of a good strategy. Uh, but. Yeah. Seems to have gone away from it a little yeah, bit. Yeah, I would like to see that occasionally as well. Um, it sort of reminds me of the old days when Jeff White would just, with that yeah, big leap of his, of. just get above the, the, the ruckman and just go bang 20 metres forward. Yeah, watching yeah. that Hotter Than Hell documentary from 98, there's a bit of play where White is basically on the back edge of the centre square. He knocks it forward about 40 metres to Leon Challey, who's oh. running, and he kicks the goal. So oh. it's just like... Pure. Did that many Ruck times. punch goal. Oh, he was, yeah. It was as good as a kick. In, that was uh, kind of his trademark, wasn't it, yeah. Jeff White? Just those absolute smashes forward. It was. And the when they brought the centre circle in it, it oh, sort of hurt him a little bit. But he was still very good. Uh, but yeah. yeah, he had some... He, he was never on. the same player after that. That rule, that rule yeah, killed true. him. He, yeah. couldn't get, he couldn't get over the top in anywhere near the same way. So just for a bit more detail there, that was when they made the rule with the... Uh, extended center circle that you had to start a certain amount uh, apart, basically. So what yeah. White used to do is he would start much further out, get more of a run-up to come over the top. But with the new rule, he wasn't able to get as much of a run-up and basically almost completely nullified him in those sort of rut contests. So Very much taking so. away his biggest strength, unfortunately. 
Very much so. But look, yeah, he had an amazing leap. Amazing leap. Uh, but yeah, so those are the followers. We'll go to the interchange bench. Marcus Bontempelli, Travis Boak, Zach Merritt, and Jack Steele. Again, a little bit midfielder-centric, but uh, that's just the way it is. You've got to find a place for the Bont. How good was he on the weekend? Yeah, he was fantastic. That last quarter. Yeah, he was fantastic, and he is a big-time player. Uh, got to have those big-time players. Absolutely. Absolutely. So all of those guys you got named there have been Australians in the past. So don't, none of those guys look out, out of place, and they're all having good seasons. Uh, Absolutely. I did sort of, I did come up with a bit of an emergencies list, just for more so apologies to these guys missing ever. David Mundy, Lockie Ash, as mentioned before, Cam Guthrie, and Jack Rewalt. Cam Guthrie, eh? Yeah, I think another guy who probably doesn't get the love he deserves. He, he gets a lot of the ball. He's tough. He's got reasonable skill. Yeah, I think he's having another good year. Very solid. It'd be interesting to see how many of these picks actually end up in your in the final All-Australian team as well. So it will be interesting. We can have a look at that at the end we'll of the year. track of it. I also realised, Dan, that I haven't chosen a coach so far. Uh, yeah. But I do think that honour has to go to Simon Goodwin so far. I mean, yeah, look, it's no... It's no luck to get 8-0, and I've definitely seen a change in him this season, making some really good match day moves when he needs to. Uh, and it, it, it was probably a... Uh, he was probably a very uh, my way or the highway kind of coach before Choco Williams and Adamuzo came in, and I think he's probably just realised that he needs to listen to his guys around him and, and take things on board. And I think that happened with Damien Hardwick as well um, in 2017 when guys like Justin Lippich came in. He realised that it wasn't just about him needing to be the messiah and come up with a innovative way to win at football. I think that's coming across a bit in his press conference as well. He does seem to have softened a bit, not in terms of like, you know, driving the standards, but you can tell he's a bit less robotic and... Uh, you know, he's always had love for the players, but I think you can see that he's sort of grown into the role a little bit more. And as you were saying there, he understands that it's not only him that's going to make the difference. There are other people who can help and, uh, you know, it's a whole of club approach. So I think he's, yeah, maybe the pennies dropped for him, hopefully. That's right. That's right. Absolutely. So well done, Goody. You will hopefully shed that nickname of bad loss that my brother came up with. <laughs> oh, <yes>. <laughs> well, <laughs> he hasn't had the opportunity to use it this year let it, yet, at least. <laughs> not yet, not yet. <laughs> all right, we'll leave it there. Thanks again for another great episode, Johnny, and uh, all the work with the All-Australian team. Very solid team. And, uh, yeah. Pleasure. Lots of fun. Lots of Interesting fun to it. find out about some of the guys that uh, you know, not many people would have thought would have been in contention for All-Australian at the start of the year, but uh, having great seasons so far. And we'd love to hear your thoughts as well. We like a good yep, discussion. Absolutely. So remember the email is footytimemail at gmail.com if you had any thoughts on Johnny's All-Australian team or just who was the biggest snub. Like, uh, yeah, who would be in your team? So that's pretty much all we've got time for. We've gone slightly long today, but that's okay. Uh, hopefully you enjoyed this episode. Again, if you're enjoying Footy Time, please tell your friends and family uh, about it and uh, we can keep growing our listener base. That would be a great help. So uh, we'll leave it there. Have a good one, guys.